0: Now, let us turn now to our reading from John's Gospel, I'm reading from page 1063 in the Church Bibles, and I'm reading from John chapter 1, verse 29 through to 51. I'll give you a moment to find that. That's page 1063 in the Church Bibles. And I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when, tra- when translated is Peter. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, church. I'd like to add my warm welcome to everybody this morning, especially the, some of the old faces who are returning and the new faces. It's great to see you. Welcome to Dunedin if you're here for the first time. I just need to say a wee word about the Dunedin weather, a word to the wise. Don't be fooled, she's a cruel temptress, this Dunedin weather. She's got her summer clothes on today, but by Wednesday she can turn an icy blast, so... <laughs> It's great to see you all. It's great to have you at Hope Church. Welcome to Dunedin. If you're here for studies or if you're here shifting for work or you're settling kids in Dunedin, it's great to have you welcome. It's been quite a week, hasn't it? It's been a week of disasters as we think back on the last 10 days or more. Uh, incredible things happening in New Zealand and around the globe. I got a, a message from my boy in Tauranga, and he had his window blown in. Uh, through the cyclone but that's nothing compared to what the devastation we've seen in the Hawke's Bay and our heart goes out to the people up there but as we look at the devastation in our country that's nothing in comparison to what's going on in Turkey and Syria and our heart goes out to our friends in Syria and our brothers and sisters over there and we could describe these as man-made disasters. It hasn't just been uh, as natural disasters. It's been a man-made disaster taking place in England over the last week as the Church of England has redefined embracing the spirit of the age and have embraced and rewritten the doctrine of marriage. So we add to that the earthquakes that's going on in New Zealand and we, we ask the question, what is going on? What is going on? But we gather this morning in the truth that we worship a sovereign God. We heard last Sunday from the prologue of John how the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We worship a sovereign creator who is sovereign over all. And everything that threatens to be over our heads is under his feet. So I want to just encourage us as we begin this morning. And remind us that God is in charge. So let's bow our heads in prayer as we seek His guidance from His Word. Heavenly Father, as we gather in Your name this morning and as we reflect on all that's going on around the world, we thank You and we praise You that You are sovereign over all. We ask, Lord, now as we sit under Your Word, we pray that You would humble our proud hearts. For those of us who are struggling with timid hearts, that you might indeed strengthen those timid hearts. For those of us that are struggling with broken hearts, that we might know the healing of your grace. We ask these things, and as we sit under your word now, we ask that you would speak to us through this word in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, last week, for those of you who were with us, and for those of you who weren't, we began our journey through John's Gospel, and we started in the first 18 verses, what's called the prologue, and we reflected on the verses that really shape the Gospel that is to follow. And in particular, some of the key verses we looked at that are pivot points for what is to follow in John's Gospel, notably among those, verse 14 where we reflected on the key doctrine of the incarnation of God, the word becoming flesh and making his dwelling amongst us. That transforms the world. That transforms our understanding. We heard about his grace, which we received, and being given the right to become children of God. We heard about the truth that is revealed in our creator God, Jesus Christ, this truth that transforms the world. Well, this morning, we continue on, and although we didn't hear it, John continues by introducing another John, the cousin of Jesus, not to be confused with the author, and he bears testimony to the one who is coming. If you've got a Bible, turn with me, and I'm reading from verse 19, chapter 1. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He didn't fail to confess, but confess freely. I'm not the Messiah. They asked him then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. I think it's hard to fully understand the Gospels without having a working... And that I'm, I mean all of the Gospels, not just John's Gospel, but all four of the Gospels, without having a working definition of the prophet of Isaiah. And I think it's hard to understand fully the prophet Isaiah without having some working definition or experience of the book of Exodus. And both of those books, Isaiah and Exodus, uh, in behind the verses that we're going to look at this morning. The Jewish leaders go and interrogate John the Baptist. They want to know who he is. But they're aware of his ministry that's taking place, a significant ministry, a baptism of repentance. And so they're asking him these questions. Are you the Elijah? Are you the prophet? Or even in verse 25, are you the Messiah? They're really wondering who this man is. Why are the crowds flocking out to be baptized? And John is explicit. I am not. I am not Elijah the prophet or the Messiah. I am simply fulfilling the scriptures that are recorded in Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 43. The voice calling in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. Now, Isaiah 40 is a fascinating pivot point in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is speaking to the exiles, to the Israelites who have been under the judgment of God for 70 years. He speaks a word of hope, a word of comfort. He says, it's time to come back. Your sins have been paid for. It's time to come back to Jerusalem. And now here in John's gospel, we feel we find John the Baptist doing exactly the same thing, fulfilling this word, and preparing the way for the Lord's. John is explicit. He is not the Messiah. He is only preparing the way. His baptism of water, he goes on to say, is nothing compared to the one who now stands among you. And John gives testimony. He would say, that this one is the one that we have been waiting for. And then he goes on to give what I think is one of the, the best summary statements of the gospel in, in the New Testament. Look at verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit." I have seen and I testify this is God's chosen one. The phrase, the Lamb of God, it might be familiar to many of us. For those of us who have been in church circles for a time, we often sing about the Lamb of God. Many hymns, many contemporary songs use this language. But it's a very unusual biblical phrase. It doesn't come up very often at all. Peter uses the phrase, Christ, a lamb without blemish. John, in his revelation, talks about a lamb who was slain. But right here, I think John is using the Old Testament to draw out the imagery of the Lamb of God in two particular references. Firstly, in Genesis 22, where God provides the lamb as a replacement sacrifice for Abraham's sacrifice. That's behind this Reference, But more importantly, I think John is echoing the Passover lamb. And I want us to turn back to Exodus 12. Such is the significance, I think, for this phrase, the lamb of God. In Exodus 12, nine plagues have been worked out on Egypt so that Israel might be set free from the tyranny of Egypt. And then a tenth plague is about to hit the land of Egypt. And the tenth plague is, of course, the execution of the firstborn son. Exodus 12 begins with a reference to the Passover meal. And the Israelites are instructed to take a lamb, a lamb without blemish. They are to sacrifice him on the evening of a particular night. Picking up in 12 verse 7, we read the following. Then they had to take some of the blood and to put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they had to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and the bread made without yeast. Eat it with haste, Moses says. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night... I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord's. The blood that was sacrificed, the blood of the lamb, was put on the doorposts of their households, and God would pass over those households. They would escape the judgment of God's wrath on Egypt. When John looks up and he sees Jesus coming in the distance and he declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is effectively saying God will provide the sacrifice. And the one whom you see walking towards you now is the sacrifice and his blood will set you free. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice the singularity of the sin. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Not sins, plural. Not the sins of murder. Not the sins of lust. Not the sins of envy. He takes away the sin of the world in its entirety. What John is presenting here is nothing less than the means and the only means by which sin, all sin, will be removed from this world. The man from Galilee who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, he is the means by which the sin of the world will be removed. This, John says, is God's chosen one. The next day, John makes reference to a number of next days in this chapter. The next day, John is out with some of his disciples and a transfer of allegiance takes place. Back in John's gospel, look at verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples and when he saw Jesus passing, he said, look, the Lamb of God, he reemphasizes this phrase. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. The first words on Jesus' lips in this gospel is the question, what do you want? What do you want? And he might ask you that same question this morning. As you gather and worship, as you gather here at Hope Church this morning, what do you want? What do you want? Do you want to continue on, on the journey that you're on? Maybe you want... To experience happiness. Maybe you want to experience something more significant than happiness. Perhaps you want to receive freedom from anger, from guilt, from shame. Perhaps you're looking for direction. Perhaps you're looking for healing this morning. Jesus would ask, what is it that you want? What is it that you want? And the disciples respond with an enigmatic question of their own. They say, teacher, where are you staying? In verse 39, Jesus' response says, Come, and you will see. Now, John makes it clear. He initially refers to two unknown disciples. He goes on to refer and describe the first one of those is Andrew. And what a significant part he is going to play. At this point, John uh, describes how the first thing that Andrew does is to go and get his brother he goes and finds Simon, and he brings him to Jesus. Look at verse 41 and 42. He says to his brother Simon, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. I said verse 29 is a great summary description of the gospel. I want to suggest that these verses here are a great description of evangelism. Once you have come to know Jesus, the first thing you want to do is to share that with somebody. You go and find a brother, you go and find a sister and you bring them, you tell them we have found the Christ, the Messiah and you bring them to Jesus. What a great description of evangelism for those of you who are out on the campus uh, this week. And so the journey continues on. And immediately, Jesus begins the work of transformation in Simon's life. Simon is brought to Jesus by his brother, and he is transformed. Jesus gives him a new name. He calls him Cephas, translated Peter, which of course means the rock. The next day, it is Jesus who does the finding. Simon is found by Andrew in the preceding verses. The next day, it is Jesus that does the finding. He finds Philip, who, like Andrew and Peter, come from Bethsaida. Jesus finds him, instructs him to follow him, and we find another definition of discipleship. Philip, in turn, finds Nathanael. Look at verse 45 and following. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth! Can anything good come from there, Nathanael asked. Nazareth is a bit like the Balclutha of Israel. <laughs> Balclutha, can anything good come from Balclutha, we might say, Carlos. <laughs> and the answer is, of course, yes. yes, that's right. Something good can come from Nazareth. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Despite Nathanael's initial hesitation, he articulates a faith statement about Jesus that is one of the clearest and fullest declarations of who Jesus is. Look at verse 49. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Those themes are going to permeate and echo throughout the gospel. The son of Joseph is also the son of God. The one who was born in a stable is also the king over Israel. I want to ask you a rhetorical question now. And it's a rhetorical question, which means you don't need to answer it out loud. You'll see why that for in a moment. The rhetorical question is, if there is one sin that you are struggling with right now that you'd want to be taken away from you, what would it be? If there is one sin that you are struggling with right now, what would that sin be that you would like to be taken away from your existence right now? Sin's a reality of human existence for every single one of us here. The temptation to rebel against God, to transgress his love and his law is real. But the promise of God's word this morning is that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that includes the very sin that you are thinking of right now. He came to take away the sin of the world. Now if I asked you what you thought the sin of the world is, I wonder how you would answer, what's the sin behind the sins? of the worlds. You might consider pride as perhaps the sin behind all sins, and you'd be on good ground. C.S. Lewis is one who describes that very reality. If you've been spending time in the Old Testament in recent days, you might think that idolatry is the sin behind all sins. On Friday, I was listening to a very interesting podcast by Jordan Peterson where he's unpacking the book of Exodus at the moment. And he's doing it with some biblical scholars, which I think is helpful to keep Jordan on track. And uh, in the fourth episode, he comes up with the, the statement that he would suggest that resentment is one of the profound, darkest sins. And he would point to Hitler as being controlled by resentments. What is the sin behind the sins of the world? Well, I want to suggest in the context of John's Gospel, as we're going to discover over the coming weeks, that the key sin that John is particularly concerned about exposing is the sin of unbelief. It's the sin of unbelief. I want to share with you a testimony now about a woman I've spoken about before called Rosaria Butterfield. It's a testimony of her conversion. Listen to the, her words. I came to Christ in 1999. I broke up with my lesbian partner because I was convicted of my sin, but my heart was a mess. Conversion to Christ did not initially change my sexual attraction for woman. What conversion did change immediately was my mind. Indeed, I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. It's one of the most profound declarations of conversion that I've heard. I wasn't converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. She goes on to say, my mind was on fire for the Bible and I couldn't read enough of it I experienced a small taste of what it means when David declares in Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Remember last week, for those of you who were here, you heard how the life and the light has come into the world in Christ. Rosaria experienced the truth of this, the wonder of the gospel. The light of the gospel, she said, gave me was ruinous. It ruined me for the life I loved. It ruined me for the life I loved. The Lord's light illumined my sin through the law and illumined my hope through Jesus and the gospel. The gospel destroyed me before the Lord built me back up. That's the wonder of the gospel. What's the sin behind all sin? In John's words, it's the sin of unbelief. In chapter 3, we're going to read in a few weeks' time, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Belief is a gift from God. Belief is a gift from God, and he's offering that to you this morning. The gift to believe in the name of his one and only son, the one who takes away the sin of the world. What does that belief look like? Well, I want to describe three things that we can see in these first disciples that define the type of belief that God is looking for. And the first is the mark of trust. John announced to Andrew that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, a Passover lamb whose blood was shed and will be shed and that blood will be the means for his sin to be removed. Now, of course, a number of other things take place for John, but he puts his trust in this declaration and instantly he turns his allegiance to follow the Lord Jesus. He puts his trust in the one who stands before him, the Lamb of God. Do you have that sort of trust this morning? Do you have that sort of trust in the Lamb of God this morning? Landslides may come. Earthquakes may come. Churches may slide into apostasy, but I will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and take his word to be true. Do you have the sort of trust that the disciples had? Secondly, they follow. They follow Jesus closely. The direct result of the apostles' trust was a new allegiance following Jesus. And this following is costly. Make no mistake about it. All of those apostles in the early days who shift their allegiance from wherever it might be to following Jesus end up paying the ultimate price with their life with the exception of our author John. It is costly to follow Jesus. It means leaving behind stuff. It means following Jesus closely. Trusting, following and thirdly, it means obedience. As I said last week, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you hold to his teaching. You hold to his instruction. The first instruction that the disciples were given in this text is recorded in verse 39. And what does he say? He says, come. Come and you will see. And this what he says to us this morning. As you put your trust in me, as you follow me, come and spend time with me. Come and spend time with me. In prayer, in reading the words, and his promise is that you will see. What will you see? You'll get a, a glimpse of the kingdom of God. You'll get a glimpse of what it means to be a child of God. Trusting, following, and obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will see the kingdom of God in all its wonder and all its glory. I talked earlier about the echoes of Exodus and the echoes of Isaiah coming through in this passage here. For the Israelites, when God instructed them that they must sacrifice an unblemished lamb, and put the blood on the doorpost. It was the entrance way and the exit way. It was the exit out of tyranny and the entrance into the promised land through the blood of the lamb. We sit under the new covenant. We don't sacrifice a lamb because the lamb has been sacrificed for us. The blood was shed on the cross. And so we look to the cross as the exit from the tyranny of our sinful nature and the entrance into the promised land. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. And let's just allow God's spirit to allow his word to settle on our hearts. If you've never in your walk thus far acknowledged the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice that the Lord Jesus paid for you, if you've never acknowledged that the blood that he shed is your means of redemption, your means of freedom, your means of of release from that sin, then now is your opportunity to come and see, come to the cross in faith and be set free by the gift of belief that God holds out to you now. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for the ultimate price that Jesus paid for us. We declare, as John did this morning, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and we avail ourselves today of that freedom. We avail ourselves of that salvation that you hold out to us in Jesus. Holy Spirit, I pray that even now you administer salvation, you administer faith into the hearts and minds of your church. Lord, I pray again that you might humble our proud hearts, that we might lay down the idols, that we might lay down the resentment, that we might lay down the prides, whatever it might be, that you might set us free and know the healing grace that Jesus holds out to us this morning. Father, we praise you and thank you for the journey that you are taking us on. We began by acknowledging your sovereign hand over all things. And we trust you, Lord. In the midst of storms, metaphorical and real. In the midst of earthquakes, metaphorical and real. In the midst of apostasy and unbelief, we thank you for the gift of faith that you hold out to us this morning. We put our trust in you. We seek to follow you. We seek to obey you. Help us in that journey, we pray in Jesus' name. Amén.